Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn, and I'm an assistant professor of English at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, which is in the great white north of Canada. But today we'll be traveling to the secondary world of Tolkien's Middle Earth, or should I say Peter Jackson's Middle Earth, in an ongoing series of lectures that I'm giving to my students uh, for a course on intro to film narrative. Today we're going to be looking at chapter six of looking at movies, cinematography, but we're taking a look at the content through the case study of Peter Jackson's first installment in his adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings. This film is The Fellowship of the Ring. I, I feel silly saying these things, you know, like uh, because they seem really obvious to me. But I always tell my students, you know, don't assume that your reader knows what you know. And today I'm all kitted out. I've got my, you know, Gandalf at the at the gates, the mine, gates of the mines of Moria. Um, and uh, so I'm ready. Uh, I'm a huge Tolkien fan. I've just got to say that coming out the gate because, you know, we should we should admit our biases, uh, our biases. And um, <clears throat> I'm a huge fan of this movie. When somebody says, what's your favorite movie? This is, this is my favorite movie. If they say, that, what's the one movie you'd take with you on a desert island? And without even cheating in the I want the whole trilogy kind of way, I would pick uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. I've seen this film over and over and over again. When my son was first born, I was just... Uh, you know, I, I had all the extended editions and, um, I, you know, you'd have to get up in the middle of the night with your kids when they're really little. And, and every night that I would get up, I would put on um, some of the, the the special features on the extended uh, DVDs and watch all this documentary content. Uh, so I, I love this movie as a film. I love this movie as cinema. I love it because I loved Lord of the Rings growing up. Um and, you know, this was the movie adaptation I always wanted to see. Uh, it did many of the things that I used to say a, a movie adaptation of The Lord of the Rings would have to do. In terms of pacing, uh, the movie does things to adapt Tolkien's novel, to speed it up. The Nazgul pursuing Frodo, these ringwraiths pursuing Frodo, the, the hero of the story. It's, it's Terminator speed. And I used to say, you know, you, you have to, you'd have to change what Tolkien does, which is a sort of meandering pace, to, uh, you know, I'm looking for Seacana kind of speed. So, you know, I, I love this film. I have anecdote after anecdote. And while this, uh, you know, this lecture is being put up on my podcast, I'm going to save that stuff for another day when, you know, when I'm not talking about things that are academic and, and things that my students need to know for our course. Um, but uh, as with the films that we've been looking at this semester, this is an award winner. And, uh, and it, is, it was nominated for 13 Academy Awards. 13 Academy Awards. That's nuts. It's nuts for any film. It's even crazier when you consider that this was a fantasy movie, that this is a genre film. And sure, it's based on something that, you know, a book that is considered by many people to be a classic, but there's lots of people who don't think that Tolkien's novel is a classic. There are many people who are dismissive of it. Um, I think this film was nominated for 13 awards, not because of its provenance, not because it was based on Tolkien's work, but because it is a serious cinematic achievement. And it won for cinematography. Even though it was nominated for 13 awards, it only won for a few. And one of the ones that it took home was cinematography. And when I'm talking about film in just about any course where I teach it, I always end up talking about some moment from this film or the other Lord of the Rings films. First and foremost, because I've seen them more than I have seen many other films, but also because I think there are so many instances of technical brilliance in these movies, technical achievement. And when I was redesigning my choices for case studies for this course, I knew I had to put Fellowship of the Ring into the viewing material. Because I'm always bringing it up. And then my students are like, why don't you just put that movie into the, the class? So I did. So I did. What is cinematography? We talk about it. People talk about it all the time. They say, I really like the cinematography. Do we, just, do we just say it because it's a polysyllabic word and then it sounds more important? Um, I like Anne Hornaday's uh, definition. And maybe some of you at this point in the semester are starting to think to yourselves, why didn't you just assign 
Anne Hornaday's book because it's cheaper, man. It's cheaper because you can buy Anne Hornaday when you're done the semester. Like I've said before, I think that the textbook we're working with, looking at movies, is while it's in, you know it's an expensive textbook, it's also a great textbook, and it has so many visual references that help you to understand especially in the instance of something like cinematography, what the book is talking about. So while Anne Hornaday, I think, does a better job of defining cinematography in brief, I think looking at movies does a better job of explaining it in detail. Anne Hornaday says that cinematography is the art of capturing images, capturing images, determining their lighting, look, and mood, and by extension, I love this, what the audience sees and feels. Because you may remember from an earlier lecture that the camera is ultimately the narrator of the film. Whoever the diegetic narrator may be, the camera is the narrator. And it determines what we see and feel. And so often, I think we think about what happens in a movie from the level of story uh, and it becomes more complicated in instances like Lord of the Rings, like Fellowship of the Ring, where somebody may be very familiar with the source material, and then they come and they see the movie, and they know how they feel about a certain scene or a certain sequence. And the camera is telling them to feel differently about it, but they're going like, well, they screwed it up. They screwed up how that was supposed to feel in, in some fashion um, because of the way that the, the, the camera... But we, we've, we learned this last week. Movies are not made by happenstance. Uh, unless, you know, it's, it's some kid in the 1980s with a beta camera. That was me. Just putting the camera down, not really thinking about where I'm sitting it, uh, not really thinking too much about lighting, mostly because I couldn't, because I didn't have access to that kind of tech. Um, but not really thinking about all the, the art of cinematography. You just point the camera at the subject and film it. That's not cinematography. That's filming, maybe we would say but it's not cinematography. Cinematography is an art, and it is about capturing images, determining their lighting, look, and mood, so that, you know, you can get the audience to, to feel, or, you know, the, the way that they perceive something. Uh, the director of photography is the person who makes this magic happen, and he has a team, but uh, in the case of Fellowship of the Ring, we're talking about Andrew Lesney, who was the director of photography for the film, primary person responsible for transforming the other aspects of movie making into moving images. Because, you know, mise-en-scene, the production design, the costume making, that happens in theater too. But you don't have a director of photography in that particular case, you just have a director. And they are making all these, these specific decisions about how the movie is going to be photographed. And our textbook goes into great length about certain types of lenses and certain types of film stock. And I don't want to get into that today because this is going to be an epic lecture anyhow. I mean, just to match the scope of the film, I guess. Now, there's just a lot of content when it comes to cinematography. And I'm starting to think that maybe this should be a two-part lecture maybe for the next time. But today it's just going to be epic, and I'll see if I can get through it quickly if I just shut up about talking about that and get on with the lecture. You know, they translate the director's vision into the reality of filmed moments. And the textbook says that, our, that, this, that the relationship between the, the director of photography and the director is one of the closest relationships. Like The director can, can and, and may be hands-off in certain aspects of the film, but it's very rare that they're hands-off in the area of cinematography. They are usually, you know, going up and, and if you, you, in, in looking at the shot, they have these special uh, cameras, uh, sort of like a lens that they can, they can frame the shot with. Um, and so if you take a look at behind the scenes videos or behind the scenes stills, you'll often see directors walking around with these little things up to their eye. And, and what they're doing is they're getting a sense of what the shot is going to look like. But it's the director of the director of photography who is ultimately responsible for making that happen. And their crew is comp comprised of the camera operator. And sometimes this is one and the same, depending on what the budget is for the movie. The director of photography might also be the camera operator. Um, in, the, in the event it's a, it's a really serious indie film, the director may be the director of photography and the camera operator. But on Lord of the Rings, on Fellowship of the Ring, uh, th there was definitely a breakdown of this 
crew size and and it goes beyond this there was a there was like second unit photography going on regularly really really big films often need what are called second unit uh, camera crews and what they do is they go out and they film stuff that the main crew doesn't need to be responsible for uh, but you'd be surprised what in in the case of something like fellowship of the ring some of the tasks that the second unit crew was assigned so for example um, the chase scene uh, with the ring race the nazgul and arwen on horseback uh, the 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 chase the the sort of long angle chase scenes of the stunt double for Liv tyler and then the the ring wraiths on horseback uh, that was all second unit, and and yet that's like one of the most gripping moments of the film. So, a second unit certainly doesn't mean inconsequential. And what we get with a camera crew is the camera operator, person who's actually running it. So sometimes the director of photography is isn't that person, but they there are instances where they are. Assistant camera persons are the people who will do things like load the camera. And in days of yore, they would load it with film, and today they just make sure that the uh, that the, the drive that is storing all of the digital information is ready to go. And then the assistant camera persons can also be responsible for what type of lens is going to be on the camera. Uh, the further down you get in the pecking order with assistant camera persons, you might just be the person who goes, take number, whatever, and hit, you know, hits the clapboard together. Um, and then we've got these, these really esoteric individuals that I think many people wonder about they wonder like what does a gaffer do i don't know if you've ever sat through the credits if you've ever watched a marvel movie you've sat through the credits and if you did it more than once you might have picked up on like what's what's a gaffer what's a best boy what's a grip uh, a gaffer is the chief electrician so uh electrical tape is often called gaff tape and so the gaffer is the, the chief electrician and you know taping all these um uh, cables down to the ground. Um, but they do more than that, obviously. The chief electrician, they're not just taping cables down. Uh, the best boy is the first assistant electrician. And you, you just wonder to yourself, why, why didn't they call them chief electricians? Because especially when it comes to Lord of the Rings, uh, the gaffer is like Sam, Sam Gamgee's dad. Uh, so this just gets confusing. Uh, and the grip is like a jack of all trades. They're a gopher. They're the all-around handy person. So uh, that's what those... those. It, it, and I just wanted to include that because I, I have always wondered those things. Growing up, you know, you'd go, well, who's the gaffer? What's a best boy? What does a grip do? What's the difference between a grip and a key grip? Again, we want to talk about some, some key terms, key, key shooting terms. And that's mostly what I'm going to be doing today is talking about like key terms and techniques related to cinematography using Fellowship of the Ring as our case study. So if you came here hoping that I was going to, you know, like get upset about the fact that Tom Bombadil is in the, isn't in the movie, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You would be anyway, because I don't really give a shit that Tom Bombadil wasn't in the movie. Um, I think that would have been a, a colossal mistake. Um, three key shooting terms. We've got a shot. We've talked about this before. We talked about this early in the, in the semester. One uninterrupted run of the camera. But here's the thing about the way that we're talking about shot, which is distinct from how we talked about it earlier. And it's that you can have a shot broken up into individual shots later on by the editing process. But in terms of cinematography, a shot is we're, ro we're rolling camera and rolling film. Not that we really roll film anymore. We just engage digital. And, um, and, then, and then they stop at some point. And they've, what they've done in taking that shot is they have gotten an, a single take. And the take is the number of times that a particular shot is taken. And then we have the setup. And the setup is where is the camera positioned? What will it be filming? Um, you know, in, in the direction that the camera is pointed affects, you know, lighting, uh, certain aspects of mise-en-scene. And in the case of Fellowship of the Ring, these terms take on a particular technical achievement, uh, I guess was, is what I, um, I was searching for there, trying to find the right term for how do you describe that, you know, in, in, in normal movies, you have a shot, you have a take, you have a setup. In filming Fellowship of the Ring, there were instances where this would have to happen twice, regardless of whether or not the take went really well. Like the take could be perfect and they would still 
have had to do another one simply for the the, the special effects reason uh, that they were working with giant-sized Gandalf, well, he's actually normal-sized, and small-sized Bilbo. I mean, even that doesn't, you know, that's, you know, like we need to shrink Ian Holm in this scene. And so they would take one shot of Ian Holm on the set, and there too, we have to note that there were two different sizes of sets constructed in a number of instances, specifically uh, Bag End. Uh, there were two completely different sets. One was Hobbit-sized, so it was effectively larger so that someone like Ian Holm would look tiny in it and then the other one would be shrunk so that when Ian McKellen was walking around in it as Gandalf he would look like a normal sized human but in this particular instance where we see this incredible pass off and this 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 blew me away this absolutely blew me away when I saw this film for the first time um, because we, we, you know, we knew to some degree what green screen and blue screen technology could do. We'd seen some amazing stuff done with digital technology since Jurassic Park in the middle of the, or the early, nineties. Uh, and, but th this was, this was something else. This felt like an extra level watching the absolutely mundane moment of Bilbo reaching out to take Gandalf's hat and his staff. Now, the movie didn't have to do this, right? They could have had Gandalf put his, his staff off to the side and hang his hat up on a hat hook or something like that. But no, we're going to spend our special effects money on ensuring that the audience believes that hobbits are small through a moment like this. And I love these kind of touches. It really sets this movie apart from other films that use a lot of special effects because quite often special effects are like, look at me, look at me. And the special effects in Fellowship of the Ring are often rendered in such a way that it's like, do not pay attention to what is happening. We're trying to just get you to buy that this is all occurring in a very real sense. And I spoke about this last time in regards to Moulin Rouge and its mise-en-scene, that the mise-en-scene of Moulin Rouge is hyperbolized. But it's about a real place and a real time. But it's hyperbolized because it's this jukebox musical, it's got all this other stuff going on. Uh, Lord of the Rings, on the other hand, is about a completely fictional world with completely fictional creatures, and it works overtime on its mise-en-scene to make you believe that this is a real place. They're treating it as though it's almost like a historical film. And so having Bilbo take Gandalf's hat and staff is this mundane moment where, you know, we have special effects crossing over with cinematography, as they often do, as they almost always do, right? The cinematographer has to be aware to some degree of what special effects can do so that they can frame the shot in the right way. And I imagine there were a lot of takes of this moment where they just, you know, to get it just right so that... Ian Holm could reach out to a non-existent Ian McKellen and take his staff and his hat. And then on the blue screen stage, Ian McKellen could do the same. So when we talk about shots in regards to cinematography, it's distinct from just talking about shots in a finished film. Color is a huge part of cinematography. And our textbook talks about black and white film. We don't have any black and white movies this semester, although we did have a black and white sequence in The Shape of Water. But there is a sequence in the film that is almost entirely desaturated, and it's the sequence in Moria. Uh, the cinematography team talks about uh, this in some of the, the commentary on the extended editions. Andrew Lesney comments on how they, they pretty much pulled as much of the color out of these moments as they could. And that's something else that we have to know is that you can do a, a digital grading of a film after the fact. And any of us who have ever played with filters on our phones, say on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, social media is of your choice or some app, we, we hit those filters and those filters affect the lighting and the color of the photos we've already taken. And that's something that we can do in post-production with our photos. Post-production in a film like this is change the color values to some degree. It's not that you can change it wholesale, uh, that takes a lot more work, um, but that, that, it, that can be shifted. Uh, and so color plays a role once again in this movie in the same way that we've seen it play such a strong role in films that we've, we've viewed already. Uh, Little Women, the, the Shape of Water, color was, was so important. And we can have 
a movie camera exaggerate colors. Uh, something that we've talked about in class is how the early Harry Potter films are hypersaturated and the later ones are increasingly desaturated. So the early ones, it's like red is red and blue is blue. You know those house colors in those early Harry Potter movies. And by the end, the movies have a strong desaturated feel, almost to the point with the last two movies where they're like black and white at certain points. And it's the same thing with the Minds of Moria, with these just this little bit of green, green shading going, green tone in there as well. Um, and in the old days, film stock would be chosen to match the color temperature of the light source. As I say, today with digital, that can be done in post or it can be done at, at the moment with settings in camera. Camera filters will also achieve some of these things to cut out specific parts of the color spectrum. Uh, I remember being fascinated by film uh, fil or camera filters when I was younger. I played in a band and our, our photographer took us out to uh, a, a Badlands area around the area of Medicine Hat and he shot our album cover photos uh, out there with us. And when we got the photos back, I was just absolutely floored because we had been out there on a very gray fall day and there was no warmth to uh, the, the, the day at all. We were all just frozen solid by the time we were done. And the foot, but the the filter that the that the photographer had used had increased the warmth and made it look like it was like a super hot day. It kind of looked like it looked like the color palette for Mad Max in some ways. Um, so we have different sources for light, and the ideal situation is to work in sunlight uh, because you know it it it. It lights everything uh, in the in the strongest way possible. We talk about like the magic hour of of sun, sunset, and even that is just this really really powerful moment um, of of light. And uh, my brother-in-law works in production, and uh, he's always talking about how you can't compete with the sun. And so when you're working with natural sunlight, uh, the the trouble is, of course, that you can't control what direction that light's coming from, and so you end up using something called a reflector board. Uh, and it's a device as, uh, that's used to help control the natural light. You bounce the, the, the sun's light uh, somewhere else that you need it to be. And so you'll have um, technicians standing off to the side. And this, this is true for all sorts of photography. Um, people doing like fashion shoots, uh, you know, if, on, if you're you know, doing a shoot on the beach, you often have somebody with a reflector board because you want the sun to, to hit the model in just such a way. And here I've got an image of Gandalf with, uh, you know, that wide brimmed hat, which is just a screaming nightmare for shooting, uh, in terms of light. And, uh, you can see the, you can see the bounce board in the background of that image that I've got there, which is of, of Frodo and Sam. And we can see Peter Jackson off to the side there, but I'm showing you here now a bounce board underneath Ian McKellen shining. It's like reflecting the light up underneath that hat to make sure that McKellen's face would not have been lost in shadow. And I, I, I stress these sorts of moments because again, I think we just, we watch movies and we think, oh, well, you know, I could do that. I could, I could point a camera. Uh, yeah, but if you've ever pointed your phone, you've probably been as frustrated as I to go like, why can't I get this to look the way that it looks to my eyeball? And it's because the eyeball is a far more superior, a far superior, uh, lens in terms of letting light in. And so we have to cheat all sorts of things uh, when we're filming, when we're using a camera to make it look as good as it did in reality. Other lighting sources, we've got artificial lighting and there are lots of instances of artificial lighting in this movie. I should say though, that I think that one of the great advantages of the first Lord of the Rings film was that they hadn't been successful yet. And so they relied heavily on their location shoots and less on their um, their sets, and 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 by the time you get to the third film, there was like a huge number of reshoots going on, a lot of studio work being done, and I think that at, to a certain degree is a detriment because this first film, to me, feels like you really been to Middle Earth because of how much of that uh, on location shooting is done, how much natural light they use, uh, but at the same time they do an incredible job with their artificial lighting. Um, you know at certain points that you're dealing with a set simply because of you know, the, the sort of digital nature of, say, the backdrop. Uh, but it's fascinating to me to see uh, here the way that the 
battle with the cave troll in the Mines of Moria was achieved with artificial lights where they had to go in and digitally recreate the ceiling because that's where all the lights were coming from. And of course, you sort of have to think to yourself, well, of course the lights were above them. That's often the case. Um, but finding out that they have to take those spotlights and 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 take them out in post-production is, is really something to me. And I mean, that's, again, that marriage of cinematography and uh, and special effects. And there are so many points in this movie where I'm still, to this day, pretty amazed at what they pulled off in terms of the digital effects in this film and, and the way that they blend so seamlessly with uh, the, the, the footage. We've got different, we've got low-key and, and, and high-key lighting, and we've talked about this before, or I've, I've mentioned it before, um, but didn't explain what it was. Uh, hard lighting or low key lighting, hard lighting or low key lighting, shining directly on the subject, creating crisp details. This is a really dramatic sort of lighting, and we see it near the beginning of the film when Frodo comes in from from out being out partying with Sam, and Gandalf sneaks up behind him. It's this great moment where we see Peter Jackson and his crew. Uh, their their pedigree of having cut their teeth making horror movies together. Uh, there are many moments in Fellowship of the Ring and the, the the other films in the first trilogy where we can really see that Peter Jackson is sort of moving the Lord of the Rings narrative, the the story through a lens, if you will, uh, metaphoric lens of of horror movie techniques, and this is one of them, right? The hand coming out of the shadows, but that hard lighting that creates those really great contrasts is what we call low key lighting, and then soft lighting or high key lighting uh, is more diffused. The light is hitting the subject from many directions, and you might remember from last week we talked a little bit about that one sequence where. Um, Satine and Ziedler are supposedly being lit by the same light, and yet Ziedler's lighting is a little more uh, low-key uh, Halloween from, from beneath him to, I think, underscore uh, the nefarious nature of his scheming. Whereas Satine is hit with soft lighting, high-key lighting, and so it's hitting her entire face from many directions to soften the look and not make her look as uh, garish as that, that kind of high-key lighting from, ben or low-key lighting, sorry, from beneath would look. And here I've got an example of Frodo and Sam walking around in Rivendell. And it should be noted that uh, there was a lot of diffuse lighting used in any of the sequences involving the elves. There's a very particular decision on uh, Peter Jackson and, and Andrew Lesney's part to give Rivendell and Lorien uh, these elven enclaves this otherworldly feel, this mystical feel. Something that we, we see a lot in movies uh, is uh, something called a rack focus, and this feels a little bit like a, a non sequitur in some ways. I've just talked about uh, lighting, and I'm just going to jump to rack focus, but the reason I want to focus on rack focus is because of how it's used in this one shot that is repeated many times in the movie. It's the moment when Sauron's had his fingers cut off. The Dark Lord's had his fingers cut off and one of his fingers with the ring still on it drops to the ground in front of um, this king from, from ancient times and, uh, and, and King Isildur uh, then gets focused on. And so we begin with a focus on the finger and it falls in the foreground. And then this rack focus thing happens. And how this works is they they just figure out where they want to focus. And it's an automated sort of thing that's going to change the camera's focus to focus on something that's um, in the background. Or if it starts in the background, then it's going to change its focus to be in the foreground. And this one gets repeated over and over again so that the, the finger with the ring on it goes out of focus and Isildur comes into focus. And we get this, this repeated a few times. I stress this again because I, I can't hammer this home enough. I, I get this impression when I talk to people who don't study film that they think that movies are just the result of what the director does. And that's it. And, and they blame the director for everything. And the movies are made by committee. 
The director is the commandant in certain cases. We know, you know, that there are certain directors who rule with an iron fist. Um, but uh, what we know from the history of of the making of the Lord of the Rings films is that Peter Jackson uh, wasn't a commandant. He wasn't like a ruling with an iron fist, but that he wanted people to feel free to do what they needed to. And we see all these really cool decisions being made in this movie. Like it's praised for its mise-en-scene. It's praised for performance. It's praised for, in certain cases, adaptation. But are we paying attention to the way in which it is amazing in terms of cinematography, the thing that it won an award for. And it's why I'm using this movie for cinematography instead of mise-en-scene. Uh, we could be talking about mise-en-scene with Lord of the Rings. There's tons of things to talk about. All the deep details in the background that are telling the history of Middle-earth, like when they find these giant statues, the Argonath. Um, but that wouldn't be talking about cinematographies. In, in terms of cinematography, when we get to the Argonath, what we get is a moment where the camera conveys scale. And it does it initially by ensuring that we get the point of view of the fellowship tiny, tiny, tiny down in the river looking up. So we get this, this low angle view. And that establishes that these are massive. But then there's this close-up shot of one of the statue's heads and the camera pans around it. It comes, it comes around the side in a, in a horizontal move and these birds fly off the side of the statue. And when we see those birds, I think it further establishes the sense of scale, the sense of how big these statues really are. We, we know they're big, but I remember when I saw it the first time and those birds flew out, I went, oh, right. And it, it, this moment of awareness of, of how big these things are. Scale is worked not only through camera positioning and those little digital flourishes, but there's a digital move that gets made many, many times in Fellowship of the Ring, and it's called a pin drop. And the way that this is done is by filming a subject in a sort of wide shot. And in this particular case where this is, this is Saruman on top of Orthanc, casting a spell that's going to bring snow and rock down on the fellowship as they try to cross the mountains. And the camera comes in in this very, very fast push, and then it, 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 it spins around and moves behind him. Now, the scale of the shot to film that, it would have been like, let's, let's put Christopher Lee out in the middle of a football field and then we'll, we'll run a drone camera past him. Well, here's the thing. We weren't working with drone cameras uh, in film. I don't know if we were working with them at all back in, uh, in, in, uh, in the late 90s when this was being filmed. Um, but I know that they weren't, using, they weren't using that technology. They were using a sort of um, like a, they, they hung it up on like a, a bungee style cable and ran the camera down that, or they would do a helicopter shot. We do a lot of drone photography now, but that wasn't necessarily available at the time. And I know that they weren't working with it in this particular film. Instead, what they would do is they do this pin drop, they shoot the subject, and then they digitally shrink them. So the, 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 the camera shot is augmented in terms of scale by the digital tools that are at hand. Scale is also used in this film to not only convey the grandeur of something like the Argonoth, these huge pillars, uh, or these huge statues that the, that the Fellowship goes by, but the, the halls of Khazad-dûm, uh, the Dwarodelf, this underground city this underground citadel and this gorgeous, gorgeous shot of Gandalf with his staff lit up and the fellowship around him. And we see them dwarfed by these massive pillars. And it, it, there's a sense of awe that this shot is supposed to convey. And then that sense of scale is revisited when the Balrog shows up, this giant monster made of fire and shadow. And before it's revealed... All we see is this glowing light, but the light is big enough that it shines all the way to the roof. Gandalf's light hardly reaches the ceiling, and we, we can see that it's coming from way down below. So one of the things that the, that the movie does at that point is convey the size of the Balrog by having this contrast of scale shots 
to, uh, to, to work with. Now, many of the times that we see the Fellowship tiny, like we do in the Duara Delph, they're digital figures. But there are also occasions where the Fellowship would have been filmed, uh, all of the actors would have been filmed on a, on a blue screen or a green screen. And then, again, the pin drop technique would have been used to make them smaller in the space. Speaking of the Balrog, scale. Again, this, this is about camera angles. We're going to talk a little bit more about camera angles in just a moment. But the way that this shot is set up is great. This is Gandalf on the bridge facing off against the Balrog as it flexes and bursts into flame. This isn't just about the grandeur of this moment from a special effects perspective. I mean, the Balrog is a glorious bit of production design. I remember when the movie ended, somebody said to me, wow, they did a really good job with, uh, with designing the Balrog. And I said, that was, that was a real Balrog, man. I, I'm pretty sure in the credits, there's like Balrog Wrangler as one of the things that, that somebody had to do. Somebody had to wrangle that thing. Because uh, I, I just felt like it was so it was so completely realized. It felt like a real creature to me. Um, but that may only be because of how terrible the Balrog looked in an earlier film version of Lord of the Rings made by Ralph Bakshi back in the 1970s. Just a, the worst Balrog ever. Um, but, but this scene is augmented by the camera angle. You can have the best special effects ever and you can have great production design. And if the camera angle isn't where it needs to be, it won't convey what you need it to. And here, we need that sense of scale. We need Gandalf to be tiny. We need the Balrog to be huge. And the low camera angle looking sort of from Gandalf's perspective achieves that. Gandalf looks tiny and lonely and the Balrog looks massive and burny. And we're, you know, we get that in one moment. We don't have to be told. We don't have to be told because the camera is conveying that information to us so quickly. Scale is incredibly important in the Lord of the Rings movies. If for no other reason, than there are hobbits and hobbits aren't supposed to get like, they're like three feet to four feet tall. And they, they didn't go with little people playing the hobbits in the main roles. They went with actors who were a little bit shorter. All of the actors, Billy Boyd, Elijah Wood, Dominic Monaghan, they're all, they're all shorter, but they weren't three or four feet tall. The film convinces us that Billy Boyd, etc., these people are three to four feet tall through a number of camera tricks and body doubles in certain instances using little people. And in the, the one shot that I have here, we see Billy Boyd as Pippin raising his sword in a mock sword fight with Boromir. Now, this could be the body double playing Boromir that they had who was like seven feet tall, seven and change. He was a really, really big guy. And sometimes he would be the body double for Gandalf. Um, he was always the massive version of a human. If you could, if you, you know, you didn't have to worry about the audience recognizing that it wasn't Sean Bean or Viggo Mortensen, then you could, you could go with this body double. But it wouldn't even have to be. It could be Sean Bean just given the camera position because it's so the the body is so close to the camera that the, the camera then makes it look larger it's just about perspective at this point and then billy boyd's just a little lower he could just be you know further down on a slope and it gives us the illusion of him being small and then the film reinforces that with wider or medium shots where the body doubles who were little people who wore uh, molded face uh face masks of the primary actors and then wore wigs that were similar would stand in at that point. And that, that jumping back and forth between those particular shots and takes creates this great illusion of the hobbits actually being small. But the way that, that sold the, the thing that sold this, this for me as a viewer was the use of forced perspective, which is an in camera trick. Small Elijah Wood next to large Gandalf at the beginning of the film is not a digital effect. It's forced perspective. How does this work? Elijah Wood is further back on that cart than Ian McKellen is. It looks like they're sitting on the same bench, but they're not. And this is a 
really ingenious move in terms of like you'd have to have the lighting just so and you have to make sure that the camera is sitting at just the right angle and it creates this great illusion and here you can see the whole camera rig is stationary because that's important the camera rig has to be stationary for this to be successful now even though the cart is moving there's no actual horse it's it's this it's this whole moving camera rig and Ian McKellen as you can see is really far ahead of Elijah Wood on that rig. So not only do they have to be lit and, and positioned just so, but then the actors have to know where to look to make it look like they're actually looking over at the person sitting next to them. Here again, we can see that Elijah Wood is, is further back. This is another uh, vantage of that uh, rig. And we once again see the bounce board shining light up at Gandalf so that he's lit underneath his hat. But forced perspective was also used in scenes where the camera moved. And this is an incredible achievement. I mean, if they won uh, the award for cinematography for no other reason alone, I kind of feel like the forced perspective thing might have been one of the reasons. It's not something that was never done before. They did, they did forced perspective in other movies. We saw the use of forced perspective last week with Moulin Rouge. All these miniature sets sitting just outside of the regular sized sets, and they were, they're out there as backdrop. That's forced perspective. But here in this sequence with Frodo serving tea to Gandalf, the camera moves. And you have to have a fixed position camera for forced perspective to work. So why did this work? Well, because the table is in two pieces and Ian McKellen was sitting on the same rig the camera was. And so they would just very, very slowly move all of the pieces in the room so that it would appear as though the camera was moving, but that we weren't really changing our perspective. Elijah Wood effectively ends up staying the same size. Let's talk about shot types. Um, there's, a, there's a number of different shot types that we can talk about. We're gonna start with the extreme long shot. Extreme long shot is often used in cinema to as an establishing shot. And here uh, I'm going to be going through a number of shots from the sequence of the film where they're at the Council of Elrond. Elrond. And this first extreme long shot sets up where everything is here. That there's that the that you know we're outside on this balcony and there's a lot of people sitting there. And then we move to the next. Uh, type of shot and what we have here is what we call just a regular long shot it's not the extreme long shot which is you know really really far back you can't really discern details in the extreme long shot right? we, we don't know who the faces of all these people are right we can't we can't see those details and then we get to the long shot and it, it might start to make sense to us who the various characters are if we know their costume or something like that but it's still a fair ways away and it's still a form of an establishing shot well what's an establishing shot an establishing shot is used to say this is where all of these pieces are and it's crucial in sequences like the one where uh there the fellowship is running away from the balrog and they run down to that stairwell that has that huge crack in it and that sequence has a few establishing shots to make sure that we as the viewer understand that there's a giant crack in the middle of the stairs that this is a really precarious position that if they fall off they're dead for sure that kind of establishing shot it, it just tells us it tells us a ton of information about the scene that is about to occur and then we get the medium long shot the medium long shot is used for action sequences because you can see, you know, everything about the characters that you need to see. Uh, you you know, full body is what we get in those cases. And here we have Gimli standing up, getting ready to go over and smash the ring. Once they've, you know, we, we what are we waiting for, right? Uh, and it's, it's an action moment. We need to see Gimli stand up. We need to see him walk over and take a swing at it. And so a medium long shot is the right one for that. And then here we have the medium shot. And the medium shot is usually from about the waist up um, or just a little below the waist. Uh, but it, it, it gives us, it's, it's the most popular shot in American film. So much so that as your textbook says, uh, French filmmakers call the medium shot the American shot because you get the most information that you can in term without becoming fully intimate with the characters as it were we're not so close that we read you know the lines on their face but we can tell what they're feeling as we can see here here we can see you know how grumpy Gandalf is being he's scowling over probably at Boromir here and you know Elijah Wood looking up at uh, Ian McKellen 
um, as they, you know, wondering, you know, what's going on. So we can read all of these expressions, um, but we're still getting their bodies as well. Then we move to the, the close-up and the, or the medium close-up. And the medium close-up is from about mid-chest up. So when, you, you know, if you've ever heard of something called a bust where, you know, they do a bust of a famous person and all you get is their shoulders and a little bit of their chest and then their head, that's the medium close-up. And the medium close-up, again, allows us to read the facial expressions of a character without it becoming the close-up, which, as we're going to find out, is related to something different emotionally. Like, if you do a medium close-up, you're getting close enough to the actor's face to understand what their emotional reactions are to things. But because the frame isn't closed off, like the, you're not snipping off parts of their head or snipping off a section of their face, the, it doesn't convey the same information that the close-up can in terms of what we call a closed frame. Once we get this close to an actor, we can see the sweat on Elijah Wood's uh, lip. We see how stressed he is about the situation that he's in. And then we get the extreme close-up, which gives us an immense amount of detail, potentially about something that's very small. Now, Fellowship of the Ring cheats this a bit by doing an extreme close-up of rings that were not as tiny as the prop that, say, Elijah Wood, you know, holds or tries to put onto his ring finger. Instead, what they did is they had a number of different sizes of rings so that they could get really good, clear footage of these because it's very very hard to get the macro shot say like when it's on the side of the mountain and Boromir picks it up out of the snow um, it's very hard to get a shot like that with the kind of cameras that you would have to get the wider shots and you don't want to be dealing with those logistical differences and so rather than have to worry about those things they built several different sizes of rings but here I love this extreme close-up because not only do we see the ring in close-up and know that it is somehow affecting the council but we see the council of Elrond digitally probably reflected in the ring and flames coming in from the sides. It's just a wonderful shot because at many points, the ring is conveyed by the camera as being a character. The ring sort of acts like a character in this movie. And we know this from the cinematography. This is something that Peter Jackson has talked about, but it's also something that the camera would have told us. When Gandalf comes in after Bilbo has left Bag End and he's left the ring behind, he walks in and the camera angle is directly where the ring would be. As though the ring is a body lying on the floor and looking up and Ian McKellen is looking down at some other actor rather than at an object. And we get this over and over again. When Elijah Wood is digging through the trunk, is this the ring's perspective as Elijah Wood, as, as Frodo looks for it? We certainly know that this is to some degree the ring's perspective when Bilbo is calling it his precious. Even though the ring is in the camera shot, perspective is often over the shoulder when it's a person. And so this camera angle, uh, this low angle shot over and over again is the ring's perspective. It's the ring's perspective. And this is interesting because a low angle shot like this is supposed to make the subject look powerful. But in none of these instances is the subject in a position of power. Like, they might seem imposing. Gandalf certainly looks imposing when he's looking straight down at the ring. I mean, it's the height of Ian McKellen. But this isn't about the character being imposing, I think. I think this is about the ring being imposing. I think we as the viewer are, 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 are in a position of weakness as we look up at the ring controlling uh, a character and issues of power coming into play there. Because uh, camera angle and height can, can give us a different sense of, of how powerful the point of view is when Gandalf shouts at Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me, you know, and he freaks out on him for thinking that he's going to steal the ring. And, and Ian Holm's wonderful reaction as he backs up against the wall. Ian Holm is tinier in that shot than he would be if that was right at eye level because the camera is positioned high and Ian Holm is low. He's in a position of relative weakness, we would say. And Ian McKellen as Gandalf is in a position of power as the camera is looking up at him. So the high angle shot looks down, the low angle shot looks up, and these can, but not always, can convey a sense of strength or power or awe. Whereas the eye level shot 
is about neutrality. And we see this in this shot of Bilbo asking Gandalf if he would like anything to eat. And Gandalf just keeps saying, tea please. But these eye level, eye level shots convey neutrality. Here we just see them as friends, right? These are some old friends talking about food and drink. And here, this is, you know, the, the sequence where Gandalf is shouting at Bilbo, that's a power move. That's a power moment. And the camera is conveying that shift in dynamic. Textbook also talks about something called masking, and the movie does this in some significant ways, so I wanted to, to bring it up to include it. Uh, because we see masking achieved on the road to Bree when we are introduced to the ringwraiths on the road for the first time. Uh, when this one rider comes up and they hide underneath that tree, Frodo looks up through this break in the root system. And that's a masked shot. That's, that is a shot that is, is a masking shot. And, and then we see his perspective, and that shot is masked as well, as we see the roots, and we, we see the, the horse's sort of weird, gory hoof through, uh, through that masked shot. We can't really get a look at what we're seeing. But we also know that Frodo is hidden, right? We have that sense of Frodo being hidden. Framing is really important. And it's more, you know, it's more than just those masked shots, which kind of... Uh, they, they draw attention to themselves um, because framing can tell us the emotional state of a character. And this was something that I was talking about earlier when we moved between the medium close-up and the close-up. The medium close-up includes enough of the actor that we can still see, you know, outside of their face. We can see the area around them. There's no part of their face that's cut off because the camera is so close to them. But once the camera has come close enough to an actor that it begins to close off their reality, as it were, uh, we may be dealing with an instance of the difference between open framing and closed framing. And open framing is generally used in realistic films. Most of the movies that you see employ open framing for the duration of the movie. Characters act, they move freely in and out of the frame, um, and that's what we mean by an open frame, is that there's, there's no sense of like this claustrophobic, this emotional claustrophobia, uh, whereas closed frames are meant to imply that the characters do not act, but are potentially acted upon. And we get both in Fellowship of the Ring, which is another reason that I chose it for my, my case study, because movies that are dealing with a lot of closed frames, such as the example that your textbook talks about, the movie Mother, um, they'll off, there's a lot of closed framing in those movies. We only get closed framing in Fellowship of the Ring when Frodo is under the influence of the ring. And it's neat how we can see uh, Andrew Lesney pulling in that technique to convey the sense of the ring controlling Frodo. That the frame is enclosing or limiting the world, closing it down, providing only one view. We really do become claustrophobically locked into Frodo's point of view in those moments. And the textbook says that it's generally employed in anti-realistic films. I don't think that's the case here. I think what it's trying to convey is not that this isn't happening or that Frodo's hallucinating, but rather that this is a sense of hyper-reality, that it's, it's some sort of other reality than the one that we experience through the rest of the film. In addition to framing, we also want to pay attention to the way in which the camera moves. So it's not just what's in the shot in the stationary framing, but if the camera is moving, what sort of motion is being employed? Uh, any movement of the camera within a shot changes the image because the elements of framing are modified. And sometimes this is just as simple as if the camera moves and now we can see that there was somebody behind him. Um, but sometimes it's the camera moves and it gives us a sensation of you know, emotion. We talked a lot about the use of kinesis in Moulin Rouge. And I have to think like that movie would be very different if it was shot without that crazy kinetic movement that almost every shot uh, at the Moulin Rouge during the can-can sequence, the camera is in motion, you know, in addition to all the, the people dancing. Um, camera movement must be smooth to be tolerable, but sometimes there are deviations from this for a period of time. Now, to make steady moving shots, the camera is usually mounted on a tripod or on a dolly, crane, car, helicopter, or other moving vehicle. And today, we can include uh, drone photography in that smooth style of photography. And drone photography is breaking the conventions of what film 
can do. Uh, Gareth Edwards, the guy who made Monsters, and then he did the new Godzilla movie, and he also was responsible for Rogue One, uh, has said that he doesn't like when the camera floats because real cameras don't float, he said. Uh, cameras have to be mounted on things to have that sense of like human experience. But as drone technology, drone camera work becomes more ubiquitous, uh, I think that's going to shift. I think the idea of a floating camera becomes less crazy and weird and, and, and only in the realm of the digital and is increasingly a point of view that we can have via drone technology. And here we can see uh, a very uh, rough dolly situation being employed where they put the camera rig on the back of a truck to shoot the Nazgul sequences. Normally when you do a dolly track, you actually lay tracks, real rails. It helps to fix uh, the camera in place, although increasingly that's changing too. And here we can see that rig that I was telling you about that was run on a wire uh, would be run, and then they would just run the camera down on a pulley system, uh, and it would allow them to do these high aerial shots and without having to use a helicopter. They could run it down into forested areas. Here again is the Nazgul uh, chase sequence, but it's used probably at its best near the end of the film when the camera zooms over the orcs as they are attacking Boromir and Merry and Pippin right before this, right in, in the sequence right before Boromir is killed. And that was an innovation that they worked with in, in a few instances because they had these shots that they wanted to do, but they didn't have technology that would allow them to do it. Let's talk a little bit about types of camera movement. We've got the, the pan shot. The pan shot is very, very common. It's a horizontal movement of a camera on a stationary tripod. And that's not the same thing as walking along uh, in the dolly situation. Because the dolly, the camera actually moves with everything else. Whereas the the horizontal movement of the camera on the stationary tripod, it sort of angles. And we can feel that. And we get that near the beginning of the film at uh, when Gandalf is going up the hill to bag end. So it's a horizontal movement. And then there is a version of this that's the vertical move um, and it's called a tilt. And the tilt can reveal all sorts of things in, in a sort of slow, not, not quite a slow motion sort of thing. But, you know, Gandalf in this particular case, uh, his hands reaching down to look at the map on Bilbo's table. And then the camera tilts up to show him looking at that map. And then the very next shot we get to see Gandalf's perspective. And it's that combination of the tilt and then the edit to the shot of the actual map that gives us a sense of we're picking that map up too, that the camera is narrating for us. It's using it, you know, that becomes our eye. Uh, the dolly tracking shot again, which I've already spoken of, uh, is again a horizontal move uh, fixed to a wheeled support. And then we get the handheld camera. And the handheld camera is... I always want to say it's a recent innovation and it's really not anymore. But it happened in my lifetime. The uh, cameras have been handheld for a long time before I was born. But they came up with something called a steady cam, And it allowed handheld camera work to be done in a way that wasn't shaky. That wasn't like vomit inducing. Because if you just did handheld camera work and you were walking, it always had that bobbing sense to it. And the... Steadicam was on a gimbal system that made the camera kind of float. And so consequently, all those movements, it just, it just adjusts for them and it stays pretty steady. And one of the first really famous uses of um, Steadicam technology was in the movie Halloween, where we get a point of view perspective of the, the killer from that film walking through his house and going upstairs and murdering his sister which made the audience complicit in that moment. It was first first person perspective. But despite having the steady cam and it's used extensively in Fellowship of the Ring, there are still sequences where they use handheld camera and allow it to be shaky. Why do that? Well, because the inherent shakiness of handheld camera can be exploited to convey a loss of control. So sometimes when you watch a movie and it's really hard to see what's going on, there's this shaky camera going on, that can be the filmmaker going, Everything's out of control. It's, it's crazy. It's madness. Uh, and there's a great example of this in the movie Interstellar when uh, Matt Damon and uh, Matthew McConaughey get into a scrap on a very, very far snowy world. And there's a lot of handheld camera work 
used in that sequence. The, the camera is quite smooth at first, and then it gets it gets crazy handheld camera. Uh, a lot of the opening sequence for Saving Private Ryan, uh, when storming of the beach, uh, lots of people dying, was meant to feel like you were there, you know, and, and the craziness of what was going on. And so they used the handheld camera for that. And we get that use in the troll battle in the mines of Moria. Uh, and why, why use this? Well, audiences associate the look of handheld camera shots with documentary realism. So this consequently ends up feeling, uh, more real for an action sequence. It can be really disorienting, but if it's done well, uh, it can add to that sense of tension and intensity. What's nuts about this is that they had to put all the effects in after they used handheld cameras. A lot of the work that had been done with digital effects to this point, the camera moves were pretty smooth. The camera moves were, or they were stationary. They just weren't messing with motion too much. And if they were messing with motion, it was something pretty smooth, like, you know, the T-Rex running after the vehicle in Jurassic Park. That's a, that's a smooth movement. It's a, it's a controlled enough movement that it allows the digital artists to do their job without too much difficulty. Handheld camera at this point was madness. It, it really meant that the effects crew was going to be working overtime to craft this sequence. And it's another, you know, sort of indicator of technical brilliance, but there are lots of those moments of technical brilliance vis-a-vis -vis the digital world, uh, coming into contact with the regular camera moves. And we get this sequence where the camera comes up over the walls of Orthanc and then moves down into a miniature set and then comes right up close to that miniature set before flying back up into the air along with a moth, a digital moth at this point, to Gandalf up on the on Orthanx Tower. That's a traditional camera move anticipating drone technology, but it's been augmented by special effects and done so in a seamless way that doesn't really focus on the effects again, but simply focuses on storytelling. When Gandalf catches the moth, that is still a digital moth, but this is, this is where, to me, this movie really shines in the way that it uses film, because it's not only going, hey, look, and, and again, I don't think it ever waves its hands and says, hey, look at our special effects. It just uses those special effects as a way to tell stories, to tell the, the narrative of the film. But then we get these, these moments where they went to the trouble of making sure that they could shoot at a time when this particular moth would be hatching so that they have the real thing in an extreme close-up in Gandalf's hand. And it's, it's that kind of attention to those things that, that makes me love this movie. And I think it's, it's, it's expressed, I don't want to say most poignantly, but I think that there's something to be said for how it's expressed in the way that the movie uses camera speed. Because it's a long movie. And yet there was a bunch of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor so that they put in like a ton more for the extended edition. This movie was already very long, and yet it never races when it doesn't have to. Or, or I shouldn't say that. It never races even when somebody else might make it. Like the, the chase sequence involving the Nazgul is shot at several points in slow motion because the Nazgul are these otherworldly creatures. Almost every shot of the Nazgul is done in slow motion, as are the shots of Galadriel. And other moments with the elves are done in slow motion to convey a sense of otherworldliness, that these are not beings like regular mortals, that they are immortals. And apparently this was just a nightmare for doing the, uh, the, the dialogue because they go to record the dialogue after the fact. And what they would do is they would, they would record the dialogue. They would speed the, they would speed the slow motion version up. The actor would record the dialogue at a regular speed, and then they would have to digitally augment the dialogue to match that slow motion uh, version that we see in the finished film that gives this sense of otherworldliness. So otherworldly creatures are often uh, shot in slow motion. The moment where the Fellowship crests the hill, this great epic hero moment where we get to see every member of the Fellowship. And by the way, this is an effects shot, all shot on a green screen, where every one of the actors did their own pass. And they had to figure out how to time it just so, so that nobody would cut each other off. But they had to do that to make sure that the Hobbits were the right size, that Gimli was the right size. 
and it's done in slow motion to accentuate it's a great great moment where the the film slows down and says hey hey pay attention this is important just like when laurie is first seen in little women and we get this moment of slowing down that that the world slows down for amy as she sees her love the movie slows down when it wants us to pay attention and it slows down when boromir dies this sequence always gets me and i know that it's 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 partially because i have this emotional nostalgic connection to these this story uh, one of the first examples of adaptation that i experienced with lord of the rings was a bbc radio series done of it and it was rebroadcast on the cbc here in canada and i would tune in every sunday to listen to it and brian sibley the guy who came up with the the script the script for it ended the episode where where boromir dies with mary and pippin shouting sound your horn boromir warn the others and then there's this plaintive melody that plays as boromir sounds his horn and then there was the sound of orcs rushing up and then the next episode was aragorn and legolas and gimli coming up and what happened what peter jackson does is he keeps us with boromir for the fight and i read a review somebody was like oh it's such a cheesy death you know and i don't think it is i think it's an epic death i think it's a it's i don't want to say a beautiful death because death isn't beautiful but this is beautifully handled it gives emotional weight to boromir's character arc where he has wanted the ring not for nefarious reasons but to protect his own people and then he tries to take the ring from Frodo and he needs a moment of redemption and the movie gives it to him. I feel like if, if Boromir's death wasn't on camera, we wouldn't feel that sense of redemption as strongly. It's different in the book. A book is always going to be different. The way that a book handles these things, different. Movie is about seeing. And so we see Boromir's death. And then we get the moment, now that we're slowed down through the art of slow motion after Aragorn has dispatched Boromir's killer, there's this moment where the camera stops to focus on his death, his passing. And what's beautiful about this, and there's so many moments like this in this movie, is that this shot mirrors not the book so much, but some of the artwork. Ted Naismith, Canadian painter, Ted Naismith did a the Departure of Boromir painting. Um, I guess his, his version was called The Last Words of Boromir. And this moment mirrors it so well, right? This that is like a painting and every frame a painting. I think there's a podcast called Every Frame a Painting, or maybe it's a YouTube channel. I don't know, but I love that phrase, every frame a painting. Great films, films that have been filmed really well, films that have been shot with an attention to the idea that movies are art will give us these, these sorts of moments. And that's the difference between a film that just points a camera at something and captures it and a movie that acknowledges that every moment that gets captured needs to be in the service of making us feel and see what the narrative needs us to know. So that's The Lord of the Rings. That's Fellowship of the Ring, cinematography for this week. Next week, we're looking at acting, the thing that almost everybody talks about when they talk about whether or not a film is any good. And it's just one aspect of cinematic language as far as we're concerned. And we'll be taking a look at Jordan Peele's ever so excellent horror movie get out so look forward to seeing you then here on triple bladed sword